And this is, of course, the Green Majority, Canada's most impatient environmental news hour. Most impatient. This is a show on life support, folks. We need you to get out the defibrillator and zap this dying chest because we are just begging to remain on air here. I'm Lauren, and then the other two voices you're hearing are Dave and Stefan. And Stefan, in his divine art, will be interviewing Ellie Menezes. Ellie Menezes. And Andrew Dumbrell. What are they a part of? They are the global campaign director and Canada campaigner for the Say No to LNG campaign. They're working on an anti-LNG campaign. Yes. They do not like liquid natural gas. They don't, and they really don't want it to be used in the shipping industry. This Mm. is all about boats. You'll learn a lot about boats. You're going to in the second half of this show. Right, because the shipping industry could go green with LNG. I mean, that's the threat that they are pretending they could go green, but as we'll hear later, the life cycle analysis of that sort of implies that that's actually not true at all. That LNG might be even worse than what they're doing now. Before we get to Stefan's excellent interview, we are going to continue our book club. This is our second last book club meeting of the end of this world, climate justice in so-called Canada. Smell those pages. I'm honestly impressed with us. I think we're nailing this book club. We've stuck with it. Yeah. Okay. Just because we're doing it doesn't mean we're nailing it. (laughs) Showing up is half half of the battle. Right. And we are on... The fourth and fifth chapters? Yeah. Yeah, Today we are covering green infrastructure for all and uniting to build a caring economy for all, which is sort of like the meat and potatoes. See, that was was an offensive Midwest accent. No, this would be an offensive Midwest (laughs) accent. Ooh, that's pretty good. That's very good. I watched a lot of Bobby's World growing up and, and his, and for some reason that cartoon's mom sounded like she was from Fargo. Do you guys remember that show, Bobby's World? It was Howie Mandel's cartoon. I never saw that show. No, I'm very He glad. played a toddler inexplicably. Um, do and what are we doing? I can kick us off. Yes, okay. I can kick us off. Okay, so yes, if ever you hear anybody saying the left doesn't know what it wants, the left does know what it wants. And these two chapters actually really eloquently um, and really beautifully spell that out in a way that has been like deeply thought through. Um, so if you're ever wondering what is it that we're actually fighting for, go check out chapters four and five of, of this book. And uh, th- this vision, um, like we've referenced, if, if you've been following so far, um, and if you listen to the interview with some of the writers from from a couple months back now, really puts Indigenous sovereignty at the forefront and focuses on ensuring green infrastructure and this sort of like indust- new industrial revolution people are pushing for, making sure it reduces inequality and, and really invests in, in the care and the caring economy. Um, so Steph, to you first, uh, what stood out to you most about the difference between the actions we see today in the economy and, and what this book calls for? This gives me a, a nice bridge uh, to, to chat about some listener feedback we received as well, because I think it, it helps a little bit. So a couple weeks ago, we received uh, some listener feedback asking for us to have a little more balance and acknowledge the difficulties of passing environmental laws and regulation in today's political climate. And that comment made me realize that perhaps I haven't sort of done a good job in explaining how I see the world and from where my criticism of much of what the federal government is doing comes from. Yes, 
The federal government's ability to do much on climate is severely limited by jurisdictional powers. A huge percentage of emissions are under provincial jurisdiction, and many of the provinces are currently being led by people who are outright hostile to climate action. And so there is a lot that they cannot do. And we're also in a position where the leader of the opposition openly campaigns against the primary piece of climate legislation, and one could presume that if, he, if they were in power, we'd take a step back as well. Now, what this book does in these two chapters is a great job of outlining a path forward that I fully believe would not only more effectively reduce emissions, but also do so in a way that would be more popular and more beneficial to Canadians, and therefore also more resilient to attacks from, you know, the Polyevs of the world and the premiers. And this is because the plan that the authors lay out has the government actually doing things to address the issues Canadians face. We have a housing shortage. Well, let's build high-quality social housing that uses the best energy-saving techniques and so reduces emissions as well. We have an affordability crisis. Okay, let's invest in public transportation both within cities and between cities so people can get where they need to go and let's make that transit free. We have a loneliness epidemic. Let's build and support state-of-the-art public luxuries like libraries and community centers that give people places to be without having to spend money our world is sorely lacking quote-unquote third spaces which are those spaces that are not work or home and we could make these spaces truly luxurious for all who wanted to attend them there's a quote that i can't remember exactly that talks about how the idea of a good public transit system is that it's used by everybody you know that it's the best way to go around and the same should be true about these public luxuries everyone should be using them because they're the best places to be and we need let's say we need more clean energy okay let's build it in a partnership with communities and ensure that the money generated by the projects goes back to those communities and let's do all of these things while ensuring that those doing them have well-paying, unionized jobs and that they not only respect indigenous sovereignty, but actually this, but support the scaling back of jurisdiction of the Canadian federal government as a core tenant of what is being done. To me, these ideas are what galvanize people. If you tell people indigenous sovereignty matters, pass UNDRIP, and then raid Wet'suwet'en territory, what you're telling people is that you didn't actually hold those values that you claimed to in the first place. Whereas if you tell people that you see a problem and get directly to working on it, it's my belief that voters will see that and respect it. At the very least, I simply cannot imagine a world where giving nuclear energy or natural gas a tax incentive is somehow better politically than giving people without access to a vehicle a way to their, see their family or ensuring people have an affordable and comfortable place to live. You know, these projects are harder to implement for sure, but now is the time to actually try. There would be certainly jurisdictional pieces on these proposals above that would cause problems especially the clean energy infrastructure piece. But like the feds promised Toronto over a billion dollars of support for the TTC that the most recent budget did not include. And so they're not even trying at the easiest stuff out there. That to me is what this book does, right? Like it lays out so clearly in both these two chapters what a world would look like where the government tried to do stuff. This is like taking the problems 
head on and trying to deal with them versus just sort of like hoping to incentivize better. Several years ago now, when everybody was putting out really awesome Green New Deal reports and Green New Deal plans, there was a group out of the UK that was publishing a lot of really great reports, very UK-centric, different scope than, than what we're dealing with here in so-called Canada. But but yeah, that I think they specifically phrased it as like trying to create a 21st century commons of public luxury or something like that. And it's like the economy can be based on principles of abundance as opposed to principles of scarcity that, that we're so used to. Within the book, they talk about how the economy as it's currently situated within sort of the West is one that's built upon like death and cannibalism, basically. Um, thank you for those thoughts, Stefan. Page 123. A green economy shouldn't be just about building more things with construction jobs mainly held by men and making profits. And the reason that's not the case is because that's incredibly boring. This this ditzy little sh shift of like, what we're doing now towards something that is slightly more green but fits perfectly into what we already think of and want to maintain as our society. It's like, as Stefan said, it's like no one can rally behind a uh, a, a non-vision. And, and what's nice about this book is that it shows that an, an environmentalist green shift of our society can come along with improving everybody's lives, right? We're told that we have to sac we have to sacrifice right and in and, and if in a society remains the way structured the way it is in order to make it green maybe we would have to sacrifice but if it's restructured then we don't have then we don't have to have that kind of individual sacrifice and greenness doesn't appear to be a war on the poor which is how some people like to uh color it there was there was an interesting way they framed the sort of status quo here and it shows that <clears throat> just the degree to which corporate needs, the corporate need for profit has designed, in a sense, the way we even consider our roles. So they're talking about, they're talking about the suburbs and how the suburbs are built and, and the car dependence and so forth. And they're, they're asserting that industries such as real estate developers and fossil fuels are against the solutions that exist uh, because they want to, quote, increase dependence on their products. And so the idea that we have that, like, the suburban model is what everybody naturally wants is actually a model that's been implanted by companies that want to convince us that they, that we need their product. And it's even more insidious than just the thought because it's actually what we've allowed our entire structure, right? Our entire way we, we, we conceive of our positions in space and society to be dictated by these, these non-entities essentially. When, when we in the climate world look specifically at solutions, it really frustrates me when people really just want to focus on like what are called like demand side solutions, because it's the idea that like the market or the individual consumers within a market will will demand what they need from, from an economic system. And like, that's never the case because like you said, these corporations are constructing a world that, that dictates to us what we want. It's almost, it reminds me of like, have you guys seen Wolf of Wall Street? And there's that scene where he's in like, I don't know a ballroom and he's like it's like a it's like a cheesy hokey sales seminar but he tells somebody like you got to sell me this pen and the idea is the way that you convince somebody to buy a pen from you is you take the pen and then say write your name for me and it's like you're creating this scenario in which they need what you're selling them as opposed to them truly producing a product 
or a service in this case, like a public service that, that you need anyway. So that's, it's, it's one of the reasons I get so frustrated by people who just get bogged down in demand side versus supply side solutions. Like in that way that we have sort of built a system right now that has sort of locked us in. In chapter five, uh, Angela Look and Crystal Lehman have a conversation with uh, the former Grand Chief Derek Nepenak uh, about how language influences our ability to conceptualize words. And they particularly point out uh, that in Cree, the word for poor uh, does not necessarily refer to lacking resources, and that the concept of poverty doesn't really translate properly either. And so to you, Lauren, I'm curious how you have seen sort of language in activism hampered, uh, sorry, how, how I've seen activism hampered by the language we use and what we have available to us. Yeah, no, the, the one that immediately sort of came up to me while I was reading this section, this passage, because they talk about how like concepts of poverty and being poor don't really translate directly from like Cree or other indigenous languages to to what it means within the the English context, which which refers specifically to like being financially despondent um, in the same way that like labor and work refer to different things as well, based on that that understanding of like the how 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 finance kind of undergirds everything within within um a, a western context um western colonial context um and and anyway so what that obviously immediately brought my attention to or or, or brought it for me were were conversations we've been having lately around just transition and what we all mean by just transition and how and how very um clearly like the the authors with this book have have done a really great job of spelling out what they mean by just transition and, and the expansive concept behind it um, and how it is so deeply rooted in, in indigeneity and, and indigenous understandings and ways of knowing. And, and that is um, not counter to, but I would say encompasses a, a Western, more labor-oriented understanding of just transition in a way that is quite inspiring, in a way that's really exciting, but in a way that also um, has resulted in, at least from what I've seen um, within conversations in in the left around just transition, like like we continuously have, we bump up against a barrier when we try to bring together all these factions together um, to talk about just transition in progressive spaces. And it's because we can't get alignment on that definition because um, within the context of like what the authors of this book are pushing for and what a lot of folks within leftist spaces um, who are taking leadership from indigenous peoples are looking for is, is like I said, like so much more expansive and so much more transformative than what just transition potentially means if you're just referring to like simply green jobs, like what's being put forth by um, by the sustainable jobs plan put forward by the federal government, like literally like last month, I think, or, or in, in February of this year. And it's laying the groundwork for, for what Canada's version of a just transition act is going to be. And it's a super narrow understanding of what just transition is. They're not even actually using the term just transition anymore because it's become so controversial, not just within leftist progressive spaces, like I said, but, but within, um, within, within, the, within the larger, um, so-called Canadian context. Um, we've talked a lot about a just transition being a controversial term in, in Alberta specifically, and Danielle Smith, the current premier, um, has really capitalized on that to kind of stir up dissent. Anyway, we need to, I think, acknowledge those spaces and those gaps in, in, in what our understandings of these terms are and, and try to reconcile them in some way. If folks have done any sort of reading about the ways that sort of white supremacy comes into language, one of the things is this demand for uh, binaries, you know, like something is good or bad. 
something is, you know, yes or no. And that can even translate in the ways that you're talking of like, is a just transition good or bad language? Well, you know, it depends on how you're having the conversation. Well, it depends if you know what the hell you're talking about. Sure. But I mean, more often than not, the correct way to talk about something is however you can talk about it so the person across from you can understand what you mean. In, in co- campaign and coalition building, language is really important and definitions are really important so that you don't get like six st- steps down the road and ha- suddenly have the rug pulled out from under you. But in smaller and more intimate conversations, you know, the need for there to be right or wrong can really prevent us from trying to actually just communicate effectively. And I think that that, that plays in here pretty consistently and it's like the ability to allow for nuance and allow for conversation that is sort of is is sort of rejected in some ways by by in some ways the english language and the culture that we you know as settlers have grown up in um but this book i think is the clearest notion of just transition i've seen but it's but it's also very wider in its implications than what i've seen before not that i've done very much reading on the just transition itself but what they say is Canada actually needs to step back legally. <laughs> like, 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 Canada needs to stop asserting itself and change a lot of its processes in in terms of its dealing with indigenous communities. Like, like, it's obviously very complicated in the sense that, like, maybe indigenous people actually own should have the entire like province of BC, and obviously that's like a huge social problem if that's if that's what's um, considered, but. They address it as a as a cultural transformation rather than a mere economic shift, which I think is is important. Oh yeah, just in, term, in, yeah, in terms of the po- in terms of the poverty thing, it's just like the the point that they're making is that poverty increase. They're talking about more of a spiritual social poverty. They're saying like there 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 are people in your life you don't have. There are social connections you're lacking. There's a certain outlook maybe that's missing that would be more positive in your life, and that's what they're talking about as poverty, rather than just uh, rather than lack of money or food or, or resources or something like that. And they're trying to, and they they spoke very, they spoke about how difficult they found it bringing in the notion of bringing in the idea that personal wealth is sort of not even a concept in the language, perhaps, right? And so if your language does not even have the concept of personal wealth. You know, already there's there's a massive there's a massive gap to to bridge in terms of discussion. Yeah. Um, well, so one more question then. Um, so something that they sort of lay out in the book, uh, in in the capture in the chapter focusing on on the care economy is the ways in which, um, from an indigenous framework and, and an indigenous way of sort of like organizing an economy, um, it's it's kind of follows this like concentric circle model, uh, based on reciprocity and responsibility and belonging and respect of each of those sort of like communities within that concentric model. But like children are placed at the center. Um, followed by elders and then beyond that women and then men. And the idea is that, that again, it's, it's even with like a child, it's, it's not just that they feel an intense sense of belonging and care, but also that the children have responsibility and the children um, have, are like take part in that, in that reciprocal relationship and, and, and elders as well. And it struck me that this is just in such stark juxtaposition to the way that our economies and, 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 and our ways of being, um, as like settler colonists, um, are typically organized. Um, and I sort of wanted 
to just sort of throw out there. Um, how would you or, or we redraw those circles to represent sort of the typical Western experience? And then sort of what are the implications of that? And, and Dave, as somebody who has sort of engaged in care work more extensively than at least myself in recent time, what are your sort of initial thoughts on that at least? Well, I just thought it was a profound illustration because uh, so they, they place they say the old and the very young, right? The very old and the very young are the most important people in their society um, because the old are teaching the young, uh, and then the young are obviously the next people who are going to be the be the society. And uh, what we what we do to our old and young, right? With the young, we try to sell them stuff, and then the old people we want to just sort of forget about. And the most important people in our society are those in the prime of their life, at the at their peak physical physical and mental capacities, because they're earning the most. And our our sort of ego ideal in our society is to be like a top earner, you know, someone who's 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 making it on their own against odds and accruing uh, wealth and glory for themselves. And so and so the and so the very center of our most important person is the is the is the is the economic unit right though the one doing the work to to keep the engine going and then and then through their like uh, imagined individualized glory um keeping the the machine going yeah as dave said i think that if you imagined it sort of how our society sort of exists the center is you know the 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 rich right it's the it's the richest billionaires and then sort of outside of that there is just a ring of wealth and then slowly deset like and slowly decreasing sets of wealth you know which is why the elderly so often end up at the outside or the or sort of end up being at the bottom of the of the power structure because it, they no longer have the control of their assets you know they are suddenly just sort of swept into you know old age homes and stuff like that which which sweeps them of any sort of consumer power and therefore they are not important you know in the society and yet that is really distressing. They're, they become they almost become a commodity that then becomes a way you can then get money from you know some of these you know like that you can then make money off of. But you're still what you but the person you're catering to isn't even them. The person you're catering to is the people who, in some ways, sent them there. Right, their children now become sort of their their keepers. And so, it is uh, the economic model has so 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 in, inserted itself into our cultural understanding that it's almost hard to imagine ourselves or ask ourselves this question of what a of what our society thinks of as as a good life or an important life or an important society and and who and who and where they are yeah it also strikes me that like even like the way i the way i phrased the question was in itself like flawed because if if this model if this if this sort of like indigenized model is is made up of concentric circles um in which everybody is of equal importance within their in in these reciprocal relationships the model that we currently exist within from an economic standpoint is like in no way concentric circles it is in fact like a hierarchical pyramid in which we are all in service to and in service of yeah like the 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 wealthiest whitest men men basically um within within our societal structure um, and anybody else who cannot be actively within service to that um, either as a consumer or, or a former producer is, is maligned and pushed to the side as much as possible. Anyway, we've, we've gone over, but, um, but anyway, so our conversation this week, like, like the previous two times has really just brushed the surface of some of the, the sort of key points that, that stuck out to the three of us. So again, as always would really encourage people to, to check out the book themselves 
hear from the, from the authors, what it is they're actually referring to, because it's, it's a really rich text and it really digs into things quite practically as well. It's, it's not like these aren't nebulous concepts. They're, they're sort of lightly touching on They're they're, they're digging into them as like serious policy points and, and talking about ways that they could practically be enacted within like the so-called Canadian context. So it's, um it's really solutions oriented and it's exciting. And like I said, if you're in a space where you're feeling like you just don't know what it is that, that people are talking about and the, and the people are working towards within, within a progressive context and a vision for, for what's possible, check out the book. It's there and it, it has some some really fantastic ideas. And uh, we'll continue this conversation in probably a month and and it'll be it'll be our last little book club meeting. Um, we'll cover chapters six, oh no, yeah, six and seven or six and and the epilogue. All right. Um, before we go to music break, Steph, did you want to plug um, the upcoming event? Sure, yeah. Um, so if you didn't hear last week, uh, we are doing an event for the first time in at least five years. We would love for you to join us on May 18th uh, at Longboat Hall in Toronto, which is in the Great Hall if you have to Google it. You also can go to greenmajority.ca slash tune in. We're going to have artists. We're going to have musicians. We are going to have community organizations. And it's all going to be about building a joyful city and combating the serious downer vibes that exist right now so may 18th please come hang out and for green majority listeners if you go there you can get 50 percent off tickets by using the code green majority may 18th tune in the green majority is entirely listener supported and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank Every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and The Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows Two folks from the Say No to LNG campaign. Please join me in welcoming Ellie Menenez, the Global Campaign Director, and Andrew Dumbril, the Canada Campaigner. Thank you so much for being here. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Green Majority Radio. Hello, everybody. Thanks. Before we jumped on the mics, I mentioned to you that this is a topic that I hadn't entirely even understood existed until I met some other folks from your campaign. And since then, I've been slowly getting more obsessed with it. But Let's start with the real basics, which is, can you give our listeners an understanding of how big shipping is in terms of emissions and its impact on the environment? Yeah, great, Stefan. It's a good, good place to start. I'm going to um, just do a bit of an experiment here. I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you, and we can unpack them as we go through the discussion. So nearly 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from this shipping sector. That's the sixth largest emitter globally. Germany is around six. So it's a big, heavy polluter. 
90% of goods arrive to us by ship. That's all the stuff in your studio, the microphone, your shirt. You know, 90% of all of that comes by ship. LNG use has increased 150% between 2012 and 2018. That's LNG is the marine fuel in the shipping industry. There are about 50,000 vessels transiting the ocean at any given one time. Methane, which LNG is primarily methane, is responsible for 25% of the global climate crisis right now. And lastly, okay, I'm going to I'll stop here, is... Uh, LNG has 80 times the climate impact than CO2. It's a very, very potent greenhouse gas. So if you look at how big a portion of global emissions this is, and if you look at how potent methane is as a gas, you quickly deduce that, you know, LNG isn't going to get us there as far as a 1.5 degree aligned society or economy. So... It's a big problem. It's a big issue, the shipping industry and its emissions. Yeah. And uh, I mean, to complement what Andrew is saying, and if we take a step back and look at the broader picture, meaning if we go beyond emissions and look at all the environmental impacts connected with LNG, we get air pollution. Also, there are many impacts associated with destruction of natural gas. It contaminates the water around the natural gas extraction infrastructure. Also, there is pollution and disturbance where LNG projects are installed. We have lots of these problems happening in the West Coast of Canada that impacts food security, health of people living around fracking sites, and the livelihood of coastal communities as well that rely on the environment for the subsistence and use and cultural practices. Awesome. And so this is going to probably be a relatively ignorant question, but I feel like I got to get it out for both myself and listeners. Right now, most ships are not using LNG, right? Like right now, most ships are coal powered or are, are most ships right now using LNG already? And that is sort of the, the campaign is to move them off it. Yeah, great point. LNG isn't widely used in the shipping industry. It's the fuel of choice is heavy fuel oil or bunker fuels. And bunker fuels, there are many different grades of bunker fuel, low sulfur or ultra low sulfur. But basically, you know, you have to heat up bunker fuel in, in order for it to be used in the marine engine. You can walk on it when you don't, <laughs> when you don't heat it up. So it's a sludgy, bottom of the barrel, very polluting, very toxic marine fuel. It's a byproduct of the refining, you know, business. And it's very heavily polluting. You know, our global economic system is basically the foundation is this cheap, toxic fuel, heavy fuel oil. You know, these goods are moving around the planet. And the reason it's economical or quote economical is because the fuel is so cheap and so dirty and so and so toxic. So there's a lot of pressure on the marine industry, the marine shipping industry, to get off this fuel and to meet Paris-aligned targets. And some in the industry are looking to LNG, liquefied natural gas, 
to clean up their act. In some cases, there are air pollution benefits with particulate matter, you know, is reduced when you use LNG. But when you look at the life cycle, and that's really important, the, the well to wake is what it's known in the industry, right? The well being the fracking well on land and wake being the wake of the wake of the vessel. If you look at the full life cycle, well to wake analysis of using this fuel, in most cases, it's worse than current fuels uh, right now. And that's the dangerous, that's the greenwashing that's going on with LNG is that some of the industry are, are touting it as a, as a solution to the climate crisis. But when you look at that life cycle analysis, it's not. Okay. So that's, that's helpful context. So basically the shipping industry is going to have to go through a sort of huge transformation over the next 20 years to get off this truly terrible substance. And the say no to LNG campaign has sort of come together to ensure that that isn't like a maybe small step down or maybe not a step down at all to LNG, but in fact moves to more sustainable options. Is that a, a rough good summary? Yeah, I think I would add to what Angel said that the danger with LNG, the LNG uptake is also this stranded asset. So a vessel, a new vessel can last for about 30 years in the water. So an LNG vessel that, you know, is burning LNG and have high methane emissions will be in the water until 2050 if built right now. So that means that we're not going to get to zero emissions by 2050 if we allow investment in LNG now. Because then these vessels, they're going to be stranded or you need high investment to actually retrofit these vessels to use zero emission fuels. That is also the stranded asset on the side of the infrastructure. So the bunker infrastructure to have LNG available for vessels, this usually comes with high investment from public money and taxpaying money. And I think all of us want to see our money invested in solutions that are zero emissions in long term. So with the LNG conversation, the shipping space, it may look like a small thing, but has very big and long-term impacts if you don't keep that window closed for that industry. Right. That makes sense. So sort of similar to some of the concern about building more pipelines now is once you have this infrastructure, it's almost impossible to go backwards. And so... That makes a lot of sense to me. And obviously, as a, a group of folks here, you're part of a coalition. Can you tell more about who is a part of this coalition or try to ensure that this is working? This coalition is it's a very interesting and great group to be with because what we did was to spend a couple of months building a strategy that was bottom up, meaning that we came together with experts from all over the world to understand LNG impacts and the projection of LNG uptaking by the shipping industry in the respective regions. And what we did was to create regional strategies and look at across the globe, what would make sense as a global campaign that would voice our concern regarding LNG use as part of the decarbonization of the shipping industry. So we are talking about here, um, academics, people with technical expertise in shipping, 
but also campaigners, activists, and people with a huge interest and connection in the policymaking and regulation space. So we all came together to put this campaign and really bring attention to how LNG has been greenwashed for the shipping sector. We are also working to grow our network and our geographic scope. So right now we over the Arctic region, US, Canada, Europe, East and Southeast Asia, but we're looking into you know, the global south and how LNG investments in these areas are also been increasing the last years. And in a nutshell, what some of the areas we have been working with and invest on are the regulatory scope and landscape for LNG to be possible in the shipping space, but also what can we have in place to regulate methane emissions for vessels that are already running with LNG. We are also looking into the technical aspects of LNG bunkering uh, and LNG as a marine fuel. We haven't mentioned yet, but when LNG is used as a fuel, there is a huge amount of methane that escapes from the engine. So this is methane that was not used or burned. It's just escaping from the engine. And we looked into regulations and approaches that could tackle this issue. We are also, as Andrew mentioned, bringing the life cycle approach and make sure we connect land to sea. So looking at the whole chain of supply of LNG from, you know, the fracking side, uh, transportation and storage and use of that fuel. What are the environmental, social and community impacts of LNG? and making the shipping sector accountable for that too. We're also interested in the financial landscape and the stranded assets, as I mentioned before. And a particular topic that we have been engaging with, and soon we will have a report that will be available in our website, is the legal framework for greenwashing of LNG in the shipping sector, especially by the cruise shipping. So stay tuned for that. And one of our great partners, Opportunity Green, have been working on that. Amazing. And so I'm curious, because it seems like a pretty obviously bad idea, who is pushing for LNG to be used in shipping? Because it doesn't sound like a huge emissions win. Obviously, it has a whole bunch of other problems in that it requires a bunch of infrastructure built across the world, you know, to tr transport it to docks and things like that. Who is trying to get this to be adopted? It's an obvious answer, but complex, <laughs> meaning it's the industry. <laughs> the industry is pushing at it, you know, pushing for it. It's the, it's the oil and gas industry, it's the LNG industry, it's the fracking industry, it's the drilling industry. They're heavily invested in continuing down this carbon pathway and attempting to greenwash its long-term benefit is a high priority for them because they're investing heavily in this space. I think one part of the enablers, if it's a slight different tack on your question, is, is the port industry. You know, there's, they're a really important kind of nexus point for shipping. You know, that's where ships bunker, they, they refuel in, in ports and goods are, are transported there. Right now, many ports are, are very hands-off with 
kind of, you know, like Switzerland, you know, we don't get involved. We just build the infrastructure that our clients want to be built. And the reason I'm calling them out specifically is because many of them are very progressive. The port of Vancouver has a great program on underwater noise called the ECHO program and reducing, you know, vessel radiated underwater noise, the pressure on habitats, the whales. They also have committed to good 2050 carbon targets. But when it comes to LNG, they're saying, well, you know, our clients want it, so we're, we're, we're going to invest in it. We wish we didn't have to, but we're going to, you know, it's that, that kind of approach. And when you're in a climate and biodiversity crisis and an equity crisis that's been going on for decades and decades, you can't sit on your hands, right? You can't be like Switzerland. You can't be neutral when it comes to this. You, you actually have to press for a truly zero emission infrastructure investment and piloting and subsidies and port projects that incentivize other fuels, you know, the, the moving away from, from LNG. So I wanted to give a special call out for the port industry that they, they really have to get involved in phasing out and turning towards true zero emission fuels. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And it, I'm not something that I think would be obvious for those of us who aren't constantly thinking about ships, which are honestly is something that like a lot of us can forget about because they are so often so out of sight, out of mind. And so let's, let's talk strategy for a second, if we can. In, in any coalition work, it's important to have a sort of a shared set of principles. And so can you talk about those uh, in this campaign and how you came to them? I love this question because I, I love the, the principal piece of our company. I think it really brings a fresh approach and language to the space of shipping. First, starting with, you know, including acknowledging and working through a human rights approach. We understand that climate change is impacting communities and peoples different across the globe. And we want the shipping industry decarbonization to take into consideration that the playing field is not level right now for all the actors in that space. So we work supporting grassroots organizing in groups. So this weekend, for instance, Andrew participated. Do you want to talk a little bit more, Andrew, about your participation this weekend with the RBC protests? Yeah, we're aligning as much as possible and the violence that's happening to the Wet'suwet'en community in the, in the West Coast with the Coastal Gas Links Pipeline is uh, a group, obviously, that this campaign wants to support. And, you know, they had an April Fool's Day action at the, at the Royal Bank of Canada on the weekend. Royal Bank is uh, one of the major investors in the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. And so we stood in solidarity with them. I was at a, a protest in Ottawa really a great turnout of activists and all sorts. And, you know, we really wanted to emphasize this foolish investment on April Fool's Day and the fool therein that LNG is uh, when you really look at the, at the life cycle analysis. And it's, I think this is a, it's a good opportunity too, to mention the intersectionality of these issues, right? You have land and sea, you know, we have facilities on land that are fueling LNG in, in ships and the issues at sea. You have 
climate issues that are intersecting with equity issues and violence against in, Indigenous people and Indigenous rights and the United Nations Declaration of Indigenous Rights for self-determination of their lands. And so there are many points of connection and it's really valuable to have a holistic approach when you look at some of these really pressing issues. And I think this campaign coming back, you know, handing it back over to ULE, I think that campaign is trying to take that approach, right? It's not just looking at a tank to wake emissions on the ship when it's being used, right? It's going, going upstream to fracking sites. And then it's looking at communities that are being affected by those fracking sites. And it also looks at the bigger biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis and the equity crisis. So we, in our campaign, we try to thread these all together. And I think when you do thread them, it's very obvious and visceral and it hits you how destructive the path is around LNG and investing in LNG. Ellie, back to you, maybe more about the campaign. Yeah, no, definitely. I like to bring the uh, the example in Canada because one of the approaches at the global level was to partner with the Canadian Physicians for the Environment, CAPE, and to look at the human health impacts of LNG in fracking sites. And then the way we connect it back to the ocean is because the shipping industry is using LNG as a argument to decrease air pollution in poor areas. You have indeed a reduction on some pollutants when using LNG, but what we actually see is that they are transferring pollution from poor communities to communities around fracking sites. So it's not really a solution, it's just transferring the problem from one community to another in one of the ways we are tackling it is to connect these communities and make sure we are bridging the gaps and connect the dots. Other principles that we have is recognizing that knowledge is generated in many different ways. So we, we understand that data and scientific data from IPCC reports and other experts are very important and we use and base some and many of our position on that, but we also acknowledge the cultural knowledge and indigenous ways of knowing and understanding that our work is to support those peoples and groups and not really just stay on the emission-centric approach of climate and not acknowledge the other, as Andrew mentioned, intersections of climate with colonization, culture, and other issues. And finally, we really try to bring accountability and transparency with our campaign, meaning that we understand the challenge here of being against, you know, big oil and gas companies and LNG investors. It's not a huge task. These groups and industry, they have been heavily invested in branding LNG as, you know, a clean fuel. For instance, in 2010, 2020, there was a research from Yale showing that people associated, did not associate natural gas with methane, 
and they had good feelings towards the word natural gas and bad feelings towards the word methane. But natural gas is basically methane. But that was a very, I would say, smart way the industry branded LNG as a greenfield. And now a new research released last week showed how they are connected LNG with renewable energy. The LNG and let's say wind energy are kind of packed in the same solution kind of communication approach. So it's a huge greenwashing that lacks transparency and accountability to what they are saying they are doing, to what they are actually doing, that our campaign is bringing to that space and really trying to support increasing awareness and opportunities like that today. It's, it's very aligned with what we are trying to do. Amazing. And so taking sort of all that, I'd be curious to know what your positive vision for what shipping could be like what, what would you what change would you like to see what would you like to see the shipping industry do to sort of avoid this sort of locking themselves into all these emissions but instead invest now and create the zero emission or actually low emission shipping uh, of the future what does that look like so we're really at a critical time the shipping industry is is behind the eight balls so to speak and because progress has been so slow so far within this industry, you know, emissions really haven't started peaking or, you know, coming down or, or peaking yet. And so a lot of catch up uh, needs to happen. And, you know, many are saying within the sector that, you know, a 50% absolute reduction by 2030 is what's needed to get back on track or to get on track to 1.5 degree warming trajectory. Truly zero emission fuels aren't there yet in this industry. So it's not like you can transform, you know, overnight or even in, in the next couple of years. But the good news is that you can take a big chunk out of that 50% by stacking efficiency measures in the shipping industry. And it's similar to, you know, your home. You fix the windows and you, you fix the gaps in the door and you get new insulation and you, you know, fix the roof. You can do the same in a ship, right? You can take waste heat. You can design the hull in a certain way to reduce drag and to reduce fuel use. You can, the wind assist is amazing strides right now. You know, windmill type technology on ships, you can slow a ship down which makes it more efficient. You optimize the speed is what it's known in the industry. You save fuel, you reduce greenhouse gases. You actually also reduce whale strikes and underwater noise when you slow a ship down. There's many, there's kind of multiple benefits associated with that. And when you stack all these things on top of each other, you get to 30 or 40%, you know, depending on who you talk to, to even more than that. So that can buy us time to get to the, the truly zero fuels of the future. So we need five, six, seven, eight years backing all those efficiency measures on top of each other to reduce, you know, the emissions from the industry dramatically. So one of the ways you create that environment, the investment environment and the culture around those efficiency measures is setting targets. So for instance, in Canada, there aren't any greenhouse gas emission reduction targets for this sector. So when everything is voluntary and 
the targets are vague and the timelines are vague and the in investment becomes vague. No one starts to, to reduce their emissions. So, you know, the federal government really needs to provide that framework, that emissions reduction framework. So targets are really important to create that climate of innovation within the industry. So that's a, the really the positive message around this. And LNG doesn't play a role in anything I just said, <laughs> right? And you can see the pathway forward on, on this. And it's not pie in the sky. It's hard work you have to concentrate on. It. And it starts with those targets, but it's, it's ready within the industry to, to make some of these uh, reductions. Amazing. And so last but not least, how can folks get involved and support your work? I just want to invite everyone to check our website, say no org, And in that website, you're going to find right now just who we are and a little bit of our mission, but we are launching the second phase of the website. Probably by the time you will listen to it, it's already live. And there you're going to be able to find resources and reports with great data on what LNG is and what you could do. I would highly recommend that folks check our report on the myths of green fossil fuel for the shipping industry. This is part of a collaboration with the Canadian Physicians for the Environment that I mentioned earlier. And it's really relevant to understand how natural gas is impacting your life, even if you're not close to port communities, or even if you are not connected to shipping natural gas is somehow impacting your well-being. So check our website, follow us on social media, and stay tuned for more resources and work from this group. Amazing. Well, thank you both so much. As promised, you now know so much more about the shipping industry than you probably did beforehand. Thank you to Ellie Menendez, Global Campaign Director with Say No to LNG, and Andrew Dumbrill, the Canada Campaigner. Appreciate your time so much and have a wonderful day. Hey.